Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this. It is the Infrequent Flying Podcast pilot episodes. As always, I am joined by our three intrepid pilots. So without further ado, uh, the man that flies a Spitfire and drives an Aston Martin, Parky, how are you? Hey, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, and he wears a tracksuit. Yeah. And he wears a tracksuit too. At the moment, I don't fly the Spit because we put it away for the winter. I've uh, put the car under a tarpaulin, so I'm more of a DIY man. Uh, not quite. And a, tra- a tracksuit wearing man. Yeah, it's what your, your your DIY attire should be. It's it's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a an Eastern European look, but I think it works. It's a little bit disappointing, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I always assume, you know, my mental image of pilots is wandering around in uh, flight jackets continuously and silk scarves, regardless of what the actual job is. But, you know, now we now we know how, how the sausage is made, it's not quite so impressive. <laughs> uh, anyway, so some, someone else who uh, fly, flies, a, flies a trainer and used to drive a Shelby Cobra, was it not? It was a replica, to be fair. A, a replica <laughs> Cobra. The technical term you're looking for is kit car. Kit car. Kit car. It's a Duncan. Car. A cheap one. Cheap yeah. one. A Granada. It was based on a Granada. Wow. I mean, that <laughs> yeah. is cool. That really is cool. That, that's, this breaks all round, though. Rear diff. That, I mean, that's really pulling back the curtain. You could have got away with Shelby Cobra. Anyway, how are you? <laughs> Good, thanks. I'm great. Uh, apart from we're not doing that much flying at the moment, which is a bit disappointing because the old um, COVID nonsense is still kicking off. It is nonsense, isn't it? Absolute nonsense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it might not be nonsense to um, the demographic that we're broadcasting to, but I certainly believe it's nonsense. Um, <laughs> and last, you're but... in a slightly younger demographic than we are, though, JB. Yeah, well, well, quite, quite. So we're we're all relatively worried about it. You're like, hey, bring it on. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm petrified. I'm actually. Yeah. I mean, that does stack up. To be fair. If Parky even sniffs COVID, he'll be dead as a doornail. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, just so the lawyers don't get involved, we at Pilot Episode strongly suggest you do not snort, snort COVID under any circumstances, in any form. Yes. Uh, and lastly, uh, the man that drives a Volvo and flies a desk, it's, <laughs> it's got us. Now that's an accurate intro. Oh, you that hurt it a... now. That is no, hurtful. Not. I'm, I'm I'm happy with that. That is an accurate description. Well, yes, um, it is accurate. Yeah, I, I'm good, thank you very much. I've been um, monitoring closely the um, VMFA 211, the uh, US Marine Corps, flying around on uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth with uh, 617 Squadron, which has gone very well, thank you. I'll take a little bit of that because that's been my job. 
Yeah, that that is actually that is actually brilliant news. Um, is there anything else that you can that you can tell us about that without uh, being locked up by um, by by military policemen? Um, yeah, other than uh, so the Marine Corps, uh, they were always due to at this time of year. They came over here, and it was um, a couple of parts to what they were doing. The, the first one was just flying over um, and then getting their stuff on board, and then doing what's called termed CQ. Dunkel know it well, but carry a qualification uh, on a different ship. They'd already done a bunch of simulators and that sort of thing. Um, and then, because it's the first time they'd operated off the ship, um, it was about integrating into it. You know, understanding um, where their you know mission planning equipment. Clearly, they've got uh, their own U.S. systems, that sort of stuff that has been built into the uh, into the ship. Um, how they were going to just ensure the F-35s uh, were speaking to each other. You know, there's a lot of mission planning involved to uh, to make that sort of happen, uh, that sort of stuff happen, to make sure the beeps and squeaks are all working. And then it was uh, it's like a crawl, walk, run. So once they qualified on the ship, they uh, they then started um, flying together, doing more sort of complex missions. They then got off and did uh, a, um, a set of complex missions on what's called CQY, Combined Qualified Weapons Instructor Course. So mm-hmm. all of our various combat elements run that once a year. And uh, and they joined into that, you know, again, which is integrating into uh, into the UK air side of things, which they're going to do when they uh, when they go off on the cruise next year. Um, and then um, and uh, they're off on the way back home in time for Thanksgiving, and then they're back in the year, in the new year for some uh, complex uh, further integration and a certification exercise before they sail. So uh, yeah, it all went really really well. So how many how many airmen uh, and ladies? Um, and aircraft will they will they bring to our carrier groups? So I, think like how many how many do they, they have brought, now? I think they brought ten this time, and it's around about two hundred marines. Wow! So their ten aircraft combined with whatever we've got on there is the main advantage just to see how the ship handles a fuller complement. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when she sails next year, you know, you've got a pretty impressive combat air power on board, and. Um, you know, right from the get-go, you're demonstrating that integration with a with a NATO ally, which um, you know there'll, there'll be other NATO allies in the carrier strike group as well, in terms of, uh, of ships rolling around as well. So, um, yeah, I think right out the door, it's pretty impressive. Is it just? That, wouldn't I? Yes. Well, I mean, it is. It is your work. All, all those hours in the Volvo and, and, and behind the desk, really, pe- really paying off there. <laughs> well, I think they did. I think they did as well. Well, <laughs> well, all that. Hey, hey Doug. Have you, have, have you ever flown off one of the US ships? No, I haven't. Not not with uh, the... You, um, how about working alongside the Marines when they were in the AV-8B? No, uh, we went... Um, we I never actually uh, sailed west over to the States. We always were going east um, when I was uh, involved. And so we we did fly with them, but it was out, um, God will know it as well, we went to Yuma to do weapons debts out there. So that's really the only uh, integration that we had flying with um, with their Harriers. And to be honest, it wasn't much integration. It was just, you know, we were operating at the, at the same site. So it wasn't really a, uh, you know, two, two squadrons working together. Yeah. We were kind of just using their facilities. But no, we, uh, I don't think, no, I'm pretty sure I, I only operated off Illustrious. So off the top of my head, when you were flying Harriers... There must have been yourself, as in ourselves, the the the, the RAF, and also the, uh, the Royal Navy. 
the Marines. Do you ever do you ever integrate with either the Spanish and did the Italians have some Harriers for a little while? Uh, now I think they did. I think they yeah. did as well, and Help and the Indians sorry. did too. Yeah, 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 they did. Indians did, yeah. Indians had sea harriers. 35 as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Indians had sea harriers? Are you, are you sure about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. Really? Didn't know yeah. that? And how much of a jumping capability was the AV-8B? It's so dry and nerdy. Uh, compared to what we what we were flying before we moved over to something similar. Well, it was quite similar, to be honest. I think AV-8B. But the AV-8B, they had um, different... Um, uh, and I can't remember, you, you might remember God as what they called them, but they had one with the radar and one with uh, the uh, infrared on the front. So it um, that they had different aircraft for different missions, so they do air defence, effectively like our Sea Harrier did until we got rid of our Sea Harrier. But the Indians did operate um, from the Indian Ocean with the Indians, and we did uh, combat against those guys with their Sea Harriers, Ooh. and uh, so it was. Uh, yeah, it was interesting times doing that. It was. Uh, it was a really good, uh, good debt that actually. Nice, nice. Um, I guess we should really talk about some form, some some form of some form of training then. Um, uh, maybe the Harrier is a good place to, place to start with it. With it, with it being such a unique aircraft, where do you actually start to be to to be able to fly it? So, uh, you know, it just comes at the end of uh, any uh, of the Air Force training system, really. And the, it happens slightly differently now because, of course, we've got different platforms. So there's similarities and there's and there's differences to when Goddard and I and even Parky, although Parky will probably be able to talk about, you know, Piston Provosts and, you know, Tiger Moths and that sort of stuff. <laughs> I, I do remember Boys, you would just basically pick the most aggressive, arrogant ones, and, and then go. So it, it was it was quite an easy selection process, really. You know, yeah, the, you know quite. the cool mates went Phantom Lightning. It, it was you know you just no 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 hang on. on personality. No, the good mates went Lightning. The, the <laughs> not so good mates went Phantom, didn't they, Parky? <laughs> yes. So, but to go back to it, just, before, just, just to see if, if Parky can flash up anymore. We, when we went through training, uh, we started on elementary training and we do um, around about 50 or 60 hours on the chipmunk. Then you'd go to, um, as long as you pass that course, you'd go to the Tucano and you do about 120 hours on Tucano. Um, I think, Goddess, did you do Jet Provost? Yeah, well, I was just thinking that all of us did slightly, slightly different um training well not slightly all of us did um completely different training didn't we in that yeah. um I, I did a flying scholarship and then did a long course on the jet provost you went through eft on the chipmunk and then through in the uh uh in the Tucano. and uh parko did you do a flying scholarship and then into njet yeah i did exactly yeah so we we both got the Fly scholarship with the cadets, so got our PPLs, our pilot's license at 17, and actually that's what got me NJET. So we used to pay, and I think we're, we're starting it again, aren't we, Dan? We've got some uh, some RAF guys out. Yeah, yeah, we are. Hey, Parky, just, just explain what NJET is. Yes, yeah, please. So Euro NATO joint jet pilot training, and I seem to recall it was about 18 nations back in the 80s when I did it. 
Um, obviously, a load of Americans, they had about sort of four or five bases, but the Americans on our course, we had um, academy grads, so they'd been to Colorado, the academy, but they all wanted to get Shepherd, Texas, which was NJEP, because there was a higher percentage of fighters were allocated to uh, NJEP, bizarrely, so they were dead keen to be there. Um, and then the Germans, Dutch, loads of, obviously, Euronato, lots of the, the Europeans, Turks were there. And there was a splattering of all these different instructors as well. So it was a real sort of mismatch. On my course was Americans, four Brits, um, and then about sort of the first ever Italians. So I think we had about 12 Italians and probably similar number of German Luftwaffe guys. And it was great. You know, it was a year, 13 months, six Six months on the T-37 tweet, side-by-side, side, like the Jet Provost, but actually a bit smaller, but very similar to a JP. Uh, got 130 hours. So it was a great flying rate because the weather was always pretty sweet. And then after six months, you jumped to the T-38, which was quicker than the Hawk, but not as agile, kind of like an F-5, two-seater F-5 with reheat. So supersonic, so that was awesome to be flying that thing. But very much like the Phantom angle of attack to land it. So it, it taught you some good stuff for, for those sort of jets. Uh, sorry, the, fa the, Phantom the Phantom angle of attack for landing? Is it high, exactly, is it low? Exactly, yeah. It was more, more, rather, it was angle of attack was sort of drummed into you more than airspeed. So... When you went back to the Hawk, I remember at Valley, it was odd. You know, there was no angle of attack in the Hawk. You know, you purely flew it, depending on your weight, on the airspeed, um, which was not really. You, you'd sort of have an airspeed in the Phantom and the uh, and the and the Hawk. Uh, sorry, in the the T thirty eight, but you would do the whole thing was really on angle of attack. And, so, and very much there, the there fighter are, was the same. There are a few people here uh, listening to this podcast. I would hope um, who have no idea what an angle of attack is when, you, when you're when landing an aircraft. So just help me out here. When you're saying yeah, so it's just... The, you know, it's, it's how steep the wing is against the, uh, I guess, against the relative airflow. You know, the, you, know you can see, you've probably all seen F-18s doing a slow speed pass where the angle of attack is, I don't know, about 40. You know, the nose is massively up in the air. Yeah. And, but it's flying so slow, it's generating lift like that. Now, you bizarrely couldn't land that slow because you'd smack the nozzles on the ground and you could do that. Definitely on Typhoon, you could do that on the uh, you know F-16. 13.6 angle of attack rings a bell, Goddess, for the uh, landing the... Uh, God, the now uh, we're getting really dweeby. Love it. Yeah. It's dweeby to start with, but it's yeah, getting it's really dweeby now. <laughs> but it, yeah, angle of attack, it's just a very precise way of, of you know, producing the correct amount of lift. So you're, you've got a, an instrument, you had a, you know, in the head-up display in certain aircraft, and you had on the Phantom, you had an audio as well. So you had a little beep, beep and a, a little, I don't know, I think it was a steady when you absolutely nailed the angle of attack because they were built for carriers. So you really wanted to put it down, you know, within a few miles an hour, but the perfect angle of attack on speed. But essentially the T-38 taught you that, which was, uh, which was good. Parky, was great I think, Parky, the thing, Parky, just, so just... The thing to, to note with angle of attack is, and the reason why frontline aircraft use angle of attack and training aircraft generally use speed, is because you can have so many different fits on frontline aircraft. So the speed that you land at changes because of all the different uh, the, the, the different things hanging off the aeroplane. Okay, it causes different drag and aerodynamics, but the wing always um, is the same. So if you land at the correct angle of attack of the wing, the speed may well be different, but you're still landing at the correct 
well, the correct speed for that fit uh, in that aircraft. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. Just on the, yes, ang- that is true. Yes, on the angle definitely. of attack, obviously, um, I say obviously, but when you're at a steeper angle of attack, generally speaking, you're producing more lift. Is that more? Is that lift from the wings, or are you relying, particularly for carriers, is that, the, is that lift coming from thrust? From the wings. So the angle of attack will just continue to increase. It gets to what's called a critical angle of attack, and then at some point when it's so steep, then it can't... Um, most wings, this is not all wings, but we're getting super dweedy now, but um, most wings will then get to this uh, angle of attack. Once you go past that angle of attack then the, the, it cannot, the airflow then breaks away from the top of the wing and it then stops producing lift, lift and you then stall, crash and, die. And, and that's quite serious. Well, it can be, yeah, certainly. And we've lost, you know, we, we lose lots of uh, aircraft stalling on finals, which, you know, finals when you're turning into land, uh, we've lost lots and lots of, uh, of people, sadly, who've... Uh, not monitored their speed or angle of attack on finals. Um, and the next thing is that you lose control of the aircraft. It generally flicks, and there's very little chance of recovering it. Ooh, so it's, it's quite an important lesson during training. And uh, so when we come back to this stalling thing, and I'm sorry if I've uh, interrupted your thread, Parky, but actually uh, stalling throughout training at whatever stage that you're at um, is always a very, very... Um, very important part of it and we, we do it at every stage of training on every aircraft and we keep a currency certainly in the uh, in the smaller aircrafts in, in doing stalls and recovering from them i just have one and, more and, question and the oh, big dunk on that is bizarrely when i was out in america i, I lost one of the course ahead of me a, a top mate ed radford but he got killed out there and he he stalled in the final turn in in a t38 <sighs> and you know obviously you know essentially you, you think well you know, just flying too slow, but so much of it and so many of crashes that have happened during the landing phase where essentially you have got too slow, but the stall has happened because you're actually pulling as well. And if you're pulling, it's the square root, isn't it, Dunk, of the of the speed it multiplies by. So you, you can, you know, whereas an aircraft might stall at, I don't know, you know, 100 when it's, uh, you know, just pulling 1G, if you pull 2G, it'll be whatever it is, 115, 3G, even more. And, and that's the killer. You tend to be, you know, if it's a, a tightening wind and you're a little bit heavy and you're pulling too much, that is so often the uh, the, the reason for those sort of crashes to occur. So, uh, hey, just, uh, just a couple of things there, because suddenly we, we have gone off down a rabbit hole and it does, if you're not used to it, it sounds complicated, but flying an angle of attack or an alpha, as we call it, round finals... Don't correct me if I'm wrong, but it's exactly the same technique as flying a speed, right? So it doesn't matter whether you're, you're flying one or t'other. You're doing the same thing to uh, to hold a particular, you know, say it's 13.6, as uh, as Parky says. You're not looking at it on a dial normally. There's some sort of, um, you know, instrument that's reasonably easy to use, and it's uh, a combination of, uh, of sort of nose position and throttle to uh, to keep the speed on the way down. You know, for anyone out there who's flown simulators or, you know, how to go in an aeroplane or anything like that. So although it may sound a little more complicated than flying a speed, it's exactly the same. So I've just got one more one more question on that then. Uh, do high angle of attack aircraft which come in flying, does that usually correlate with the faster aircraft? So what I mean by that is um, you would need to use angle of attack to generate more lift in something which is a bit more aggressive because presumably when they're flying at level, you don't want to be producing that much lift because lift also makes drag. 
Does that make yeah, any sense? Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, it is the, the you know, all the, the jets, the heavy ones, and as Dunk says, the ones where the fit changes. I would, again, this rabbit hole that we've dug ourselves, but God, it's just the example that I meant, though, when you're pulling round the final turn, you could be in your typhoon at 150 pulling, but the speed could be washing off like a dingbat. Bad example with typhoon because it won't stall, but another aircraft could stall at that same speed. Whereas if you were pulling hard, the angle of attack would increase, and that would give you your warning, if you see what I mean. So I think in some ways, you know, with those those tightening winds and the, and the angle of attack, it would surely that would give you as, uh, a bit more warning. What do you think, Doug? No. Well, the angle of attack would give you more warning. Yeah, if you were just, you know, when you're pulling through, it, when that speed is washing off around the final turn. Uh, I don't know. I, I think, you know, either or. It, it is just, it, I think it's as God has says, uh, and I think we should probably uh, explain what a, a tightening wind is as well and a, and a slackening wind. So all, all of these things, so Parky's talking about a tightening wind. It means if you, you land in a certain direction on, on the runway, and we're clearly going to be teaching some people to suck eggs, so sorry about that, but uh, you, you effectively want to land into wind uh, on the runway. Um, but sometimes, you know, the uh, the big fella upstairs doesn't allow us that luxury and he puts the wind in a different direction. So if when you're turning around the corner, because circuits generally have only one direction, OK, if you're, when you're flying around an airfield, you'll, let's say, have a left-hand circuit. So you'll always turn left into the circuit, you'll climb to a thousand feet and then you'll do a left-hand turn to land. Now, if when you've got a, a wind, it's not straight down the runway, if you've got a wind that as you turn finals, it's from behind you, it means turning that corner, you have to turn tighter because the wind is blowing you towards the runway. And what that can mean is, well, so as Parky was explaining earlier, the more angle of bank that you've got on, then the higher the stalling speed is. So it means that you will stall the aircraft sooner. So we are getting a bit technical here, but so, that's a tightening wind. And hence, and you also get a slackening wind where you're turning into wind round finals and you need less angle of So I have an interesting sort of factoid which ties into this fair, fairly nicely, I might add. So I've been reading quite a lot recently uh, about naval battles in World War II because I'm a nerd. And they had to swap the flagship duties from the battleships to the carriers. Do you know why? Uh, is, that because the, is that because the carrier was dictating um, where it had to sail because it had to sail into wind for flying operations? That's exactly right. So they started with the flagships being the battleships, but then they had to radio over to battleships to change course. And the battleship wasn't really that bothered because they didn't understand ca ca carrier operations. So eventually they thought, well, this is useless because we're waiting 40 minutes to change course and we can't get all of our aircraft off or even retrieve them in some cases so they switched the flag over to the um to the carrier and then the carrier dictated the course for that exact reason and that and that's always the thing with carrier operations in that uh you know at some point you're going to be predictable because everyone knows where the wind's coming from and everyone knows you've got to turn into wind uh, to uh, uh, you know, to launch flying operations, um, oh, and so they either. do specific things in order to not be predictable. You know, changing the windows of when they're flying and uh, maneuvering around the place and that sort of thing. Oh, um, crikey! Uh, 
So if you're hun- if you're hunting a carrier, the wind's going to give you a good idea which direction it's going. At some point, yeah. But no. if you don't know when they're going to go, when the jets or aeroplanes on board are going to go flying, then uh, um, you know you, you can keep people guessing. Plus, you know, um, emission controls, as they call it, you know, turning lots of stuff off, so you can't even see where a carrier is, track it, or any of those sorts of things. Um, you know, that, that's the sort of stuff that they uh, they get into. Wow, there, there you go. So, when you're um, training, right? Where is the biggest jump in performance? Where does it suddenly become very real? Is it like going from a Texan to a Hawk, or is it from when you go to the Hawk to your front to your frontline jet? What what's the biggest jump? Well, I think you know. So if we go back to, I know we sort of branched off because we were talking about the different training streams that we'd all been through, and I was saying that I went to Takano, and you do a, a certain amount on Takano, but there's no you do a bit of low level navigation. Uh, but you're not really doing anything tactical at all. You're just doing aerobatics. Um, and then when you go uh, from whichever stage it is now, Parky didn't do this, but Goddard did. So Goddard went from his jet provost. I went from my Takano, and then we went to Hawk. And again, things changed. And initially, and I can't remember if you did this, Goddard, but uh, initially we used to go Hawk, and you do just you'd convert onto the Hawk on one squadron and then you'd go to a different squadron to do your tactical uh, tactical flying and weapons training on the Hawk. Um, and then did you do that, Goddard, or were you mirror image? No, no we were the, um, the second mirror image course at Bali. So okay. rather than, you know, the... the course the courses before us had uh, had done that at valley and then gone to chivener and uh, and broadie to go and uh, do their weapons training we stayed on on the same squadron so just to to say what mirror image is so mirror image as god has just said it used to be you do your basic training at valley then you'd go to chivener or broadie uh, and what they did is they then swapped that so that both i think they shut broadie uh, they kept Chivener down in Devon open and they kept uh, Valley in Wales open. And now both stations took students right from the beginning. So they did all of the Hawk training and the weapons training on one course and they mir- mirrored each other. So the mirror was, you know, a mirror course at both Valley and uh, down at Chivener. So it was called Mirror Image. And I, I did that as well. So the leap up that you're talking about, I think. Well, I th- you know, there's one every time you change aeroplane during flying training, there is a pretty significant step in both performance and the kind of thing that you're doing. So even uh, on advanced flying training, when you're doing um, your weapons and tactics training, it's actually very basic weapons and tactics stuff. Um, it's not advanced at all in terms of weapons and tactics and then you go to the operational conversion unit and even then when you get to your frontline aeroplane you're actually just learning the very basics of the weapons systems that it can use and the basics of the tactics and it's only when you get to the squadron and you then do a combat ready workup on the squadron you start getting further into the you know the weapons and tactics but even then you won't drop all of the weapons that that aircraft can uh, can use. And it takes a finite amount of time, even when you're deemed combat ready. You won't have, for instance, in our day, gone and dropped a Paveway 3 or a Paveway 2 laser-guided bomb during your combat ready workup. Often you'd have just done dumb bombs and, um, uh, you know, you, you, you probably wouldn't have fired an air-to-air missile either. That took a specific... Uh, weapons camp that you went to again that was based in uh, in valley 
Murat Valley in uh, in Anglesey. Well, you so go and you, do would, that. you would strap your air-to-air missiles on in Valley. Where would you fire them? Uh, over the um, uh, Irish uh, Sea. Uh, uh, yeah, it's over the. Uh, I was going to say the Bear Biscay. It's a bit of a long way away. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's how we'd fire them in a Bear Biscay. Biscay, yeah. No, uh, we, they've got a range at Aberporth. Um, that uh, is out, you know, the, the stretch of sea, which I can't remember the name of, just out to the west of uh, West Wales. There they have a big... Is it not the uh, Irish Sea? Is it the Irish Sea? No, probably well, I mean, so, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's between the UK and Ireland. It's, it's a stab in the dark, I guess. Yeah. I guess it's yeah. not the, the, the Indian Ocean. <laughs> yeah, the Welsh don't have a sea, do they? I think they do. I think it's... Oh, yeah, you're right. It's the Irish Sea. It belongs to the Irish. <laughs> so if, if, if I remember... If I, 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 so, JB, uh, I was just going to say, you know, when you talk about the big jumps up, um, you know, it, it, it is like learning... You would have gone through learning to drive, you know, yeah. so the very first time you see that car before you've got into it, before you know anything, you're a bit daunted by it, but the lessons that you go through teach you, you know, for the very basics right from the beginning through to the end. Um uh, you know, I remember feeling pretty daunted going straight from a flying scholarship that I'd done when I was 17 to uh, I was 18, I think maybe just turned 19. And all of a sudden I'm into a, a JP5, a Jet Provost, which could do 350 miles an hour. And you're strapping into an ejection seat the first time, you know, it was all and you're putting on an oxygen, oxygen mask and a helmet. So right at the beginning, I think all of those things are the, uh, you know, the elements that seem pretty daunting. But then once you get in it, the, your flying instructor is teaching you it right from the beginning, the very basics of this is how you fly at straight and level, this is how you do turns, this is how you start to climb and descend. So you get so used to it as you go through wow. um, that, uh, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it becomes second nature early on, but, that you know, you're learning stuff all of the time. And then you get, you know, there's a little bit of apprehension. Am I going to be able to fly the Hawk? What's it going to be like? But then you do so many simulators before you actually get into the thing. And so, you, you know, you're, you're reasonably confident that, that uh, you're going to be able to at least start them up um, and then, uh, you know, go off on your first trip. So it happens. It, it's graduated the whole time. And remember, it, it does take a long time. These flying training courses take a long while. Uh, I remember when we got the first Abinitios onto Typhoon, because we all figured, you know, we'd all, as the boys have said, stepping stone from whatever, you know, Jet Provost to Carlo onto the Hawk. And then the Hawk to your frontline jet was a, was a bit of a stepping stone, but... In performance, it was you know, the, the Hawks are a bit of a G monster, to be honest, and it, and it went pretty well. Uh, but there was clearly there was a step up into an F4 or a Harrier or, or whatever. But the boys jumping into a, a Typhoon, we were thinking, well, suddenly, you know, they're into a 9G, real acceleration, certainly in reach, you know, just awe inspiring performance. But the boys were completely um, cool with it. It, it was, it was they duck to water, you know, all the abos we got. I guess we had some, you know, good quality boys, but they. None of them struggle with the performance of the jet at all. You know, the G suit is particularly good in Typhoon, so that side of it was not a slag. But it was, you know, we thought it would be a real quantum leap, you know, up and G from the Hawk. But that, it, it was pretty cool, and it was, a, you know, quite a big step. Um, just out of, out of interest, you were obviously uh, flying with the Dutch. Were they, did you send? Did you go over to F sixteen before you came over to uh, Typhoon? Yes, so yeah, my, I sort of did Phantom, Tornado, F-16, then back on the Tornado for the display and stuff, and then Eurofighter. So 
Um, the F-16 was really a, a bit of a trial that the Royal Air Force were doing to see if Parkey could actually, after, what, about 15 years operating as a two two crew aircraft, could actually manage on his own. I was going to say, it, it does sound like a, a better a, a better platform to move on to the Typhoon rather than going straight from the, F, the F-3. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Typhoon wasn't around at the time. The, the, the beginning of Eurofighter, when it, most of the boys were exchange boys, there, there seemed to be almost all of them were. So they'd, they'd flown some sort of multi-role single seat, um, you know, on exchange, which I think we've explained before. But, you know, you do a three-year exchange tour with another Air Force. You know, boys have flown the F-22, F-18s in Oz, Mirages in France, etc., Marwan was F-16 in Holland. Goddard did F-16s in, in the States. Uh, and Dunk, unfortunately, wasn't good enough to get one. But there, there were loads <laughs> of things to, to get onto, uh, you know, to the jet. And that's how it started. Then, it, essentially, it was the dying Tornado Force and the Harrier Force and the Jaguar Force. Those were the sort of the, the boys that, um, that, that filled the jet. But as Dunk alluded to, the, the, the big thing with, uh, with training was... When you've got to, you know, you, you've gone through pilot training, you, you've done the weapons bit, however you've got to, either mirror image or I did Chivana, so you've, you've shot the gun and you've dropped a few, you know, practice bombs on the hawk. Now's the time you get posted, and it really is. You know, it, it's the different courses have different ways of doing it, as were eggs, so are hard-boiled or soft-boiled, and you had to headbutt them, and, you know, the one that was soft was the, or hard, I can't remember, was the jet that you got, so... You know, back in the day, I think there were eight from Phantom, Buccaneer, Harrier, Tornado, Jaguar. There were so many different choices of which there was the single seat versus two seats. And you, I think you got a, a, a single seat recommendation as well. Because, um, Dung, I think you were actually posted F3, weren't you? Tornado F3, but I, that changed to Harrier. I was, I was, yeah. Were, were you a little bit upset when it changed, changed to Harrier Dunk? Or, or was it always the dream? Right in the face. I, I was gutted, absolutely <laughs> gutted. It was a funny old story, actually, because um, so I got posted to the, uh, to, to, to the F3, and at the time there was such a long wait. Um, I waited, I had a great time. I, I did a year up at uh, Edinburgh flying the chipmunk as a flying officer, you know, uh, flying the chipmunk out of... Um, Turnhouse Airfield up at up in Edinburgh, and then I did six months um, flying Hawks out of uh, St Athen, and then I went back to refresh. And when we'd finished our air defence refresher, they said, "Nope, the jets aren't ready. They're giving them to the Italians, so uh, you're going to oh. have to hold for another year or so." I can't remember what it was, um, but they, there was me and one other fella, um, Matt Elliott, who got a single seat recommend out of the the course that we were on. And uh, they said, right, so um, but you can either wait or you can go to the Harrier. And I was fed up of waiting. So I... Uh, I well, what, would the, what would the Air Force make you do for a year whilst they're waiting for an aircraft? Well, it's actually a bit of a bone of contention at the moment because uh, we now have, su- in the Air Force, we have such a lot, uh, such a backlog. We have this training system that, you know, is finding it very difficult to cope with the demand that the front line uh, has for pilots and so we are you know the training system is unable to produce what we need at the moment because it has all sorts of different uh, uh, different pulls from different directions on it 
um, without going into detail on that, which could be a whole different podcast, which we probably need to be very careful where we stepped around. But um, it means that uh, the guys are now, so the guys where, where I am, so I'm at elementary training right at the beginning of, uh, of flying training for, mm-hmm. for the guys. And most of them now, when, they ha- when they've arrived at elementary training, have held for two years already. So they've been in the Air Force for two and a half years. They've done their officer training and then they've gone straight into holding. And they might hold on a squadron or they might hold in MOD. They could hold anywhere and they'll get experience of the Air, Fo- Air Force whilst doing that. But of course, they actually just want to be flying aeroplanes. So these are pilots which have been held for two years. And is there anything useful they can do? What are they doing? Mowing, mowing the lawn? I mean, surely they need to no, be... No, JB, JB, they are putting them to... Uh, to a good use you know i mean it'll depend on the individual but uh you know i bumped into one guy in london uh who was in one of the defense innovation units yeah so as a a youngster just finished his degree um he was the perfect individual to be in that innovation unit going out and uh, you know looking for new ways that we can uh, we can do things um stuff that industry uh, are getting on and and actually you know, Dunk and I both held for around two years back in the early nineties. Well, what did you um, do? What, what did you do for those two two years then? Because I guess if you look at your career, it's the other way around, isn't it? Which is you well, have done your flying and then you've done non-flying. So, were you doing just non-flying duties for those two years? Well, it depends. So, it just depends when it comes. So, when we went through, I held a bit longer than that. I held for about three, maybe three and a half years, all in all, a long time. But. Um, the 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 bits that I held, I was uh, f- for between basic flying training when I didn't have wings and uh, and going to Chivener to do my advanced flying training. Uh, I held up at Lucas and I held in an air show office and it wasn't great, you know. To be fair, it was mm. you know it's still you know trying to sort out the air show. So it was interesting to do with that. But of course everyone that is on flying training wants to just be doing flying training but then my second hold came which was the longest one which was nearly two years came after i'd got my wings which meant that i could go and fly so even though i was holding i was still flying um it just i wasn't doing productive flying so you can't just do film dunk for the you know for yourselves to be honest and the especially the youngsters because as you just said you know you're just chomping at the bit to get get your stickies on you know something vaguely fast and uh, you know it's what you've joined and what you're training for and it must have been you know again I, I was not that much further ahead of you but you know that sort of five years or whatever it was but i guess when the the jp was going and we had you know valley then we had broadie and and uh Chibana with attack weapons units there were no holds we never it was just something you maybe you know had a month or so but you know, pilot training took two years. That was the deal. And, you, you know, you just cracked through it. And all of us were, you know, 21 on on, on fighters. And it, it, I do feel for the youngsters now, you know, the, the youngsters pitching up at uh, on the Typhoon were sort of 28 years old. And they, they they joined as quick as they could and done pilot training as quick as they could. And it's, it is it is a shame, but I guess it's, it's the way it is at the moment. And, you know, the COVID's not helping, as you say, Dunk, with training and, you know, bed- 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...in the new aircraft that we've got, but it's, it's one of those things, once you've got a hold, it's very difficult to... Get your, you know, get that backlog sorted because uh, you know, obviously, unless you just stop the intake for quite a while, which actually, yeah. Did. So our, ours, ours was a combination parky of um, the the first Gulf War, which started when Dunk and I was at uh, were at um, Cranwell. So because of that, all of the operational conversion units had closed. They'd essentially stopped because they were using all of you guys. You know the the. Uh, experienced guys because there was such a draw to get fighters from a fighter perspective fighters out to uh, out to the middle east um and then exactly as you've said you've then got a backlog also at the same time you mentioned the fact that there were eight different types of aircraft when when you were going through but remember them you know we lost the lightning then the f4 went then the buccaneer went um and we started drawing down in that post sort of 91 as the cold war came to it came to an end post 1990 um you know it's almost sort of peace dividend that we started drawing down the front line therefore and and unfortunately the the demand in any training let alone flying training i think is always going to be cyclical like that as you you draw down forces you get to a steady state and then the, you start to increase forces again, and the and the tap has to go on. The, you have to turn the tap on in terms of recruiting and getting people through there. And it is always going to be behind. And you know, in, in recent years, we've drawn down the the uh, as Duncan mentioned. You know, from uh, Jaguar Harrier, um, Tornado F three, Tornado GR four. So as you know, you've still got a, a bunch of. Um, a load of uh, pilots, aircrew around there who then trans- transitioned across to other aircraft, whether it's Predator uh, or Reaper these days, um, any of the RSR platforms into Lightning and uh, and Typhoon, which meant that the, the tap turned down as also the same time that we've completely transitioned the flying training system to different aeroplanes and, you know, are working through the, the different ways of doing it. So, you know, it's just, a, it's a set of circumstances and it, uh, it's, it's unfortunate for the guys who are champing up and joined to be pilots. But as, uh, you know, as I mentioned there, depending, and I think they are more and more getting jobs that will serve them well for, for 
later on in the future. So mm. where we were 19, 20, 21, thrashing around, we still had an awful lot to learn about the Air Force. So if you, you know, if you take my career progression, at some point I had to do a ground tour. I know you guys haven't. Um, and I've done more and more of them, but it, you, you do that and you get a much broader understanding of the Air Force. So whilst they are not 20 years old on an aeroplane, and by the way, this is the same across almost every other Air Force in the world right now, um, because tons of people are transitioning their, uh, their flying training systems Tons of guys, you know, they've uh, they almost all people have uh, have drawn down. I was talking to a U.S. guy the other day who was head of the uh, the pilot. Um, uh, what was it called? The uh, uh, pilot recruitment task force or something like that. Looking at a big hole that they had in recruiting and not being able to get guys through flying training. So there's a bunch of different factors, but I think as long as we use the guys properly before they hit flying training, then um, you you are cutting out a bit of the career that they'll have to do later on as well. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think there's a lot of valid points there. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that everyone would sign up to not fly, but it is one of those things, and I'm sure that you boys will have a, a tremendous disagreement on this, you know, more roundly, would you not say? Yeah, um, so I'm not saying in any way, shape or form that, um, you know, it's all right not to go flying when you joined up to do that. Um, but it is what it is right now, and I, I know um, there's a lot of people working on to try and make it, uh, you know, quicker from uh, uh, from joining to getting onto the front line because we need the pilots on the front line can i just ask a quick question from the time that you guys started training to now um has the trade say if everything went per you know perfectly to plan has the amount of time that you spend training decreased because of techno te- technological advances um simulators that kind of thing yeah fl- flying hours have definitely decreased you know we would i'm not sure what the jp Takano, but i'm, I'm hazarding a guess you'd get a couple of hundred hours probably maybe 150 before you're into a hawk so you know you, you'd come out of pilot training with 250 300 hours and and you know absolutely there's you know simulators if they're great you can do so much work in that of the uh, of, of the systems you know a, a lot of it you still do have to fly but um there's, there's there is less flying hours and more simulator stuff these days than it was and you know some of the trips back in the day were just you know it was just not hours building but gaining experience you know it was great fun doing solo formations and uh, solo navexes and mm. you were maybe just sort of you know cementing in stuff that you've learned but you know there, there was probably some flex that you could chop and they they clearly have um but it was, you know, it, pilot training was and, and always will be great fun. You know, it's a mountain you have to climb. It's various skill sets that start off pretty difficult. Some some you find easier than others. Nobody has a an easy ride through pilot training, I would say, other than, than dunk. But it's, uh, you know, it's the way, the way it is. <laughs> there, is, there, is no, <laughs> there is no easy ride on my part, let me tell you. Hey, um, I think the difficulties you, you bring up, and it's probably, again, worth talking about you know given that we're talking about training is that that uh we call it synthetic training um and we can do an awful lot with it the the simulators that we have that now have replaced those flying hours are they're very good there's no doubt about it Mm. but they cannot replace and it doesn't matter what stage of training you're at i think they cannot replace uh real world flying because there's two elements to it uh it's very difficult to um 
to put the, the number of inputs that you get from external sources. Even if you're just doing a training sortie, I went out to do one the other day. We have a, uh, we, we call it a flying training device. It's not a simulator, but we do uh, a sortie on the ground and then we go and do it again in the air. Uh. And, and the students find it so much more difficult in the air because of course, air traffic are talking to them. The weather is constantly changing and is different. You know, you can't just put one weather scenario that you would put in the sim. You can't do that in the real world. And, it, it just, it is exponentially, perhaps exponentially is too much, but it's certainly far more complicated uh, in the real world, even in an elementary trainer. And when you put that forward to F35 and things like that, even then, even though you can practice that interoperability between those platforms, and, and it is a fantastic simulator, it still can't simulate some of the inputs that you'll get when you're out there, and it also can't simulate the fear factor of landing on a carrier with a 200-foot cloud base because you know that you're in a simulator. Whereas actually when you're doing it for real and the carrier's, you know, bucking up and down and the weather's pretty crap and uh, it's your the natural the human instinct is then to, you know, elevated heartbeat and that fear factor comes into it. Perhaps fear is not the word, but certainly you're a heightened state of arousal which you may not be in a uh, in a simulator. Yeah, talk talk, talk got a, talking uh, simulators. I was, I was just oh, I was just talking to. Uh, it was a guy who used to fly the S three Viking just oh, the wow. uh, just the other day, and um, he was talking about the uh, they were on a it was exercise rather than operation, but they were sort of semi blue water ops. They they didn't want to divert the aeroplanes. What are blue water the, ops? Got us. Just tell us. So there's no land diverts. So you're only landing on the ship. Um, you haven't got anywhere else to go. So you're all the way down to minimums. So there were three, he said there were three F-18s uh, and the weather was starting to come in. So they needed more gas. So they launched three S-3s to go and refuel these guys. Um, and then uh, this particular guy, so they refueled these guys. They hooked up, had a S-3 each to go and tank off, had enough gas to then go back around through an instrument pattern as the weather started coming in. Um, and he was the last one to land. It had transitioned to night, and it was a 200-foot cloud base with half a mile visibility. And he said, as he, as he rolled into this thing, he, and obviously there's a co-pilot in this as well, and he had a quite a high-hour high um, co in there. who They both kind of looked at each other and went, right, here we go. And S3 being an old aeroplane, you fly the ILS equivalent down. And normally you transition, he was saying, you transition to a visual approach. When you hear that phrase, call the ball, uh, roger ball, that means they've now transitioned to visual and uh, and they're going down. But when the weather's bad, the LSO can take over and, and give them a few more um, uh That's the landing safety officer. Yeah, landing safety officer can give them a, a few more. He said, you also, you never land at night with your landing light on, but they got him to turn the landing light on so they could try and see his aeroplane. The LSO could see the aeroplane through the mist and cloud and everything. And he got to a point where LSO, uh, I can't remember what the phrase was there, but paddles had him. So LSO is giving him come left power, come left. And simple things like, I guess as an LSO, you're looking at this thing in the opposite direction. He's telling him to come left. 
Um, he knows because he's going to crack his wings to turn left, he's going to drop a little bit. So he's asking him to put the power up at that particular point. And they're saying, right, call the ball. And he's just not seeing it. At, and at some point, the guy in the right seat goes, I've got it. So he calls Roger Ball, looks up and transitions to this visual approach. And he's off slightly. So, And this is less than half a mile to the ship, about 150 feet is then having to just maneuver this thing and slammed it onto the deck. I said, what wire did you take? He went, I don't care. I got one. And he said he was still shaking about 12 hours later. So Dunk is 100% correct. If you came out of a simulator like that, you would not have the visceral physical reaction that this fella did trying to put a Viking down on a, uh, on a carrier in a cold, wet, dark night with nowhere else to go. You're going to run out of fuel and uh, eject. Just, just to be clear, S3 Viking, that is the, um, that is the anti-submarine warfare. Uh, it was, yes. Right, well, in that case, it, he wasn't... And he, was, and he was refueling, yeah? He was in the refueling... He was refueling his, his mates. Yes. So right. they'd... Um, so I don't ju- know whether they converted them to it or whether they could do it as well, but the Vikings could refuel other aeroplanes. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to correct you on the podcast, but if that was the case, he wasn't flying an S3 Viking. He's, he's flying a KS3 Viking. <laughs> but I, I don't want to... I, I wouldn't like to mention that, actually. No, I'm here to be corrected. <laughs> I, I don't deem to know everything, but um, and, and, and let's, it, call it, let's call it a Viking. Yeah, and and if he was transporting stores, that would be a US three Viking. But again, I don't like to talk about those things. But yeah, I mean, it, it just shows difference. It just shows di- difference between real world ops and uh, and simulators. No, exactly. And um, I mean, as Doug says, I, I I I don't know. You'd have to ask one of the uh, uh, the young pilots going through at the moment. But the uh, there are we used to have a uh, do you remember Parky it was a cardboard I don't know what you did on the T37 but a cardboard cockpit so yeah. in order to learn what? your checks they'd give you a facsimile a uh, a, a cockpit of uh, a, I mean pretty much actual size most of the time yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you would then build room, on your desk your in your room yeah. put your put your chair underneath it and you would run through the checklist and your hands would go to the various switches around the place. So you got used to the cockpit. Do you want to wear his flying helmet at the same time? Yeah, he did. You... Um, and, <laughs> uh, but nowadays, the, the guys get given um, you know, computerised training. Certainly when I was doing a bit of tutor flying up at Wittering, the, um, there was a the ton of the guys either going through the um, elementary flying training or uh, on the tutor or the university air squadron were sat at this little cockpit thing there, there was three or four of them in the crew room there with actual switches and things on um, you know using that and then there was another there was another computer base station that someone was using someone was using and doing actual flying on it as well whereas we didn't have that uh, back in the day so there are some things clearly as you would expect that that are massively helpful um and probably put the student above where we were when we get in an airplane for the first time so um, you know what though i think there's there's something so we've gone from um that we don't have cardboard cockpits anymore um they have um what do they call them uh ddrs or something but anyway whatever they call them they're, they're a computerized uh, checks trainer but it means that you you know you know when you on a perhaps on a flight simulator or some, something you have to scroll round with a mouse to look around you have to you can't look at the whole cockpit 
And so you have to scroll round and then with the mouse, press a button to make that switch go on. So switch your fuel pump on or whatever it is. But it, I, it, I just don't think it's been thought through. A cardboard cockpit is so much more, it's so much easier because you learn the pattern of yeah. the flow of the checks. And even though you're not turning it on, it just doesn't flow properly with one of these computers that they're learning their checks on. It might be that it's just me and I'm just old school and perhaps that, you know, the kids are absolutely fine with it. But it just, I think sometimes we've tried to make things too complicated in, uh, in training and uh, it's not always, doesn't always bring out the, uh, the best result. It's probably worth saying as well, Dunk, though, the, you know, in our day, you know, for example, when you went Harrier, there was a two-seater, there'd be some QFI in the back, flying instructor who would, you know, essentially send you solo on the thing. You do a couple of trips and then off you go. I remember the Buccaneer was, I think, you know, the only jet of my period where, although it was two-seat, there were no two-seaters. There was no controls in the back. So the boys used to do some stuff on the hunter i think up at lossy then they jump in with some experienced nav and off they go sort of solo in the buccaneer whereas now with f-35 and also typhoon they just jump in it the first trip they fly airborne they're on their own and that you know that's good that they've been doing that now for you know a few years and absolutely no snags and the sims are good you know that that they are well prepared and you know they just jump into the jet on their own for the first time which is cool that is cool. It's also, it also sounds terrifying. Hey, uh, can I just go back to um, God? Is your story about the S three Viking? Very quickly. The, the KS three. The KS three Viking. Thank you. <laughs> it, could, it could have been the US three. Um, <laughs> the UKS three. So, so <laughs> Winkle Brown flew off the Eagle, didn't? It? Was it was it the Eagle that he flew off to um, supply uh, Crete uh, Malta? No, I think it, that was Jeff Wellham. Jeff, Jeffrey Wellham, yeah. Jeffrey Wellham, yes, of course. No, Winkle Brown was the naval aviator, but it was Wellham that flew off the carrier. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. You, uh, you're right. And then I think it was the Eagle that was later sunk. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So I found this out, which I found astounding. So that S three landing or KS three landing. Sounded pretty terrifying. Listen to this for unbelievable. When they first converted the Eagle, so the Eagle was meant to be a battle cruiser and then they converted it into an aircraft carrier, one of the early ones, so they didn't really know what they were doing. They built the Eagle with twin islands, so you'd have to land in between two islands, but then to connect the islands, so it'd be easier, it'd be easy to get to and, to and fro, they then connected, connected the islands with, with a bridge. So if you were landing, you'd have to land between two islands and underneath the bridge. No. Yeah. Is, isn't that insane? Was they have a picture? Evidence. Did you, are you sure they were? Is there a picture of it, JP? I, I, yeah. There, yeah. Um, well, I guess back in the day, these things were so slow. But I mean, still, you don't want to be landing between two islands and underneath the bridge. I'll, I'll try and find it for you. Yeah. yeah, so it, you know, back to the uh, back to the training front. Dunk, you know, as someone who's in the in the middle of all of this, you know, so we, you know, we didn't get a lot into our individual journeys, but I, I think we we've, we've done it before, you know, in terms of chippies and T thirty sevens, JPs. Um, do you think so? With the the prefect, 
that the guys are going to now is that a better training aeroplane for guys to then go on to the texan and the uh, and the hawk if they are going in that particular direction because obviously we're talking fast jet clearly you can end up on helicopters or uh, or uh, larger aircraft or isr aircraft as well um is it a good better kit i, I think it's great i, I mean i do I, I was really quite dubious to start with and perhaps i've still got reservations in terms of right this is an elementary trainer so it's about learning the very basics of flying and learning to fly attitudes rather than you know looking yeah. at the instruments and learning to look out in the right way and just cement the foundations of flying for which you don't need a high performance airplane you just want it to be very basic and i think the guys they they cope with it. It's interesting what Parky said about the guys going to Typhoon and then coping with that performance. Um, I, I think there is quite a lot of their capacity is taken up with then having to uh, contend with the performance. Of the <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and <laughs> you're right, JB. No, I'm okay. And, uh, <laughs> He's been sniffing COVID. Yeah. And... Um, but they, they definitely cope with it. And I think to answer your question, I think it must prepare them far better. The fact that it will, you know, cruise at 180 knots and they're, they're only going to leap up 60 knots to be cruising at 240 on Texan. Um, and they're going to have so much more to help them on Texan, like head up display, etc. And indeed, now we've got a training system in place where we've had two guys go through, which is going prefect direct to Hawk and not doing the Texan because the performance of the airplane is such that it's deemed that you can do that. Now, it doesn't have a head-up display, and you know it, it is limited to a certain extent as to what you can do with it. But the proof in the pudding will be as to whether those guys, how they perform on Hawk T2, having gone straight from the prefect. But it is a, it is a really, really good airplane. Do you think they're ahead of the curve in operating an aeroplane because you know flying an aeroplane is flying an aeroplane you, you, you can either do it or you can't and um you know speaking to air traffic is the same dealing with weather all of that sort of stuff but clearly there's a reasonable amount of kit in there it's a modern aeroplane which is what they're going to see in the t2 is what they're going to see in a typhoon and the lightning does that put them ahead of the curve compared to we where we were getting out of the jet provost and going into a steam driven hawk yeah, I think so, because they have got to manipulate that kit inside whilst making sure that they're not seduced too much by all of that uh, magenta writing that's down there. All of those, I think we've got four uh, multifunction displays in the prefect. Uh, and so there's a lot of information presented to them. And it is about learning what you need to concentrate on and when. And if you, you know, should be using certain parts of the kit and when you should be using it. And so I, I think it probably does got us. I think it does give them an advantage over what we had with, uh, you know, an artificial horizon and an airspeed indicator and, uh, and, and not much more. So, yeah, I think, it, yeah, it's definitely a, a, a step forward. But sadly, they step backwards as well um, in that, you know, the aeroplane's procured. And you may have heard this, but it doesn't have... Uh, a, uh, an engine, uh, engine protection system on it. So the guys have got to be very careful. I mean, it's good in one way, but they have to be very careful not to uh, over-torque or over-temp the engine because you can do it very easily in this aeroplane. 
And although that's a good thing to learn in terms of their, their, their learning a skill where they are looking after the aeroplane and they have an empathy uh, with the aeroplane in, in terms of how they're handling it, certainly in the, uh, with the, uh, the power lever, but they're always going to go on now to an aeroplane that has care, carefree throttle handling. So again, they're, they're taking a proportion of their capacity in learning this particular um, technique that it's got on Prefect that they'll never use again. So there's swings and roundabouts. I, I, I don't think that's done? a bad thing. Yeah, how does it work down for the helicopter boys? I'm just trying to think, is it, you know, they're always going to cut their teeth and so much of helicopter flying, it's obviously so different, the skill set yeah. that we're doing out at Shawbury that you know, they're finding something quite advanced with gear. I mean, I, I mentioned it because my, my lad is uh, is just about to start on the Air Corps and he's, he can't wait, but he, he says it's going to be the fastest thing he'll ever fly, you know, by some margin because it, it's quite advanced, but then he'll go to the helicopter, you know, and, 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 and have to, not relearn, but, you know, some of the stuff maybe is quite advanced, but stuff he won't ever have to use. Yeah, and I think what they've done, Parky, is they've noticed that, and they've, um, so I think after uh, James's course, um, they, the army will just go straight to Shawbury. They won't, they won't do defects. And the Navy, of course, I'm not quite sure exactly how they're going to do it, how they're going to, because, of course, the Navy have got both rotary and um, fixed-wing flyers. So at the moment, the training system works differently to how when we went through. That At the end of their elementary flying training, 24 hours of flying is all they get, and then they get streamed as to whether they're going to go fast jet or multi-engine or helicopters. So... It, uh, the, it's a very, very short period of time in which to be able to tell if someone is uh, of the correct standard to go to each particular platform. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess, Duncan, if, the, if it works with the Army boys, for example, and they go straight to Shawbury, crack on, they're fine, you could argue just to save a bit of time and less hold, you could go, look, any of you boys, you know, you know, maybe done a bit of flying before your good reports and you want to go helicopter, you could almost just crack straight on, go straight to Shortbury, conceivably. I guess that would, you know, you, you wouldn't get streamed, as you say, fast yet multi-engine or helicopter, but it, it might be another way of just, you know, shaving off a few, uh, a few um, hours and courses for people. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I, I've had that, that exact same thought process in how they do that. I've, but one of my students um, recently had... 300 hours had 300 hours flying gliders some powered aircraft motor gliders um and although he was you know learning stuff at elementary flying training the fact is he could definitely fly an airplane he was fine and okay there was just a little bit of tweaks in you know what he needed to do but i thought you know exactly as you said god as well this guy should never be at elementary flying training he's far too good is effectively he should go straight to basic training. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is he came there going, well, I don't know whether I want to go fast jets or I want to go helicopters. And luckily, I, uh, you know, I've spoken to him and he's seen the uh, seen the lights at the end of the tunnel and he's gonna he wants to go fast jets. But the fact is, is because that that process isn't there that was there when we were around when we were going through training. And God, as you went straight from your flying scholarship with a you know perhaps not quite that many hours, but a number of hours and you parky as well and went straight to your basic training and indeed you know that it it used to be when we joined that you did fast jet or nothing 
that was it. You joined as a fast jet pilot, didn't you? And then yeah. you didn't go. I'd quite like to go helicopters. That's not how it worked. Just on um, just on that when you're making your decisions, I, and this is a personal question, uh, really, is uh, how you thought about go how about how you thought about things going forward. Did you just want to fly the most capable machine, or were you more interested in doing the most amount of active work? So I imagine. Um, you know, if you were flying ground attack, or definitely if you're flying helicopter, you're more likely to see uh, more interesting missions or actual live action than you are if you're flying a fast jet, because you're unlikely to come up against fast jets. There, but on the other hand, if you are flying fast jets, they are more more fun to fly. I, I guess. It's an interesting question. That I mean, I, I think from my recollection going out. Attack weapons, or, or it was mirror image for the other boys. But you, you've basically done. I think the, the the course was quite geared towards low level, and it was great fun flying at low level in a hawk. You know, trying to find a target and doing um, that side of it. Maybe getting bounced and low level evasion. You did a bit of air to air, but it, because there was no radar in the hawk, a bit of air combat. It, it wasn't that advanced. It, it, it struck me, and I remember leaving, or you know, at the end of attack weapons before I got posted. I felt more geared towards ground attack, and that's actually where I wanted to go. And, you know, I kept getting lost at low level, and I was uh, low average two seats, so they went, mate, you're going phantom. And it was brilliant. <laughs> it was the, the best thing, you know, the, the Air Force is quite wise in some ways. We were chatting about how they, to another mate, um, you know, how we, you know, people got posted, and most seemed to suit, actually, the aircraft. Maybe we would have all fitted in no matter what we got, but I, you know, I was absolutely you know, a duck to water with the Phantom. It was fantastic, and I loved it. This sort of the air defence bit, multi role was was great as well. But you know, I think when I was early, you know, I, I loved it on the F sixteen when we went to Goose. I would tend to try and choose to do the, the bombing stuff, find a couple, cut out tank. It was just great fun. But the stuff that we like to do most probably on the F sixteen was the air to air. It was just more fun, more dynamic. The gun sight was brilliant maybe do a little bit of bombing as well but it, it is it, most aspects of fast jet flying are brilliant but so to answer your question I, I when i came out attack weapons i was actually more thinking i would prefer to go more ground attack and i didn't um you know uh, i guess dunk when you went f3 i mean genuinely you weren't you weren't that upset were you and and you know you you, you obviously went harry and you loved it as well so you know it, it is what it is I think, yeah, it's, it, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Actually, I, I did particularly well uh, because I wanted to go Jaguar. And I, I just I wanted to go single seat ground attack, as Parky's just spoken about. But also the, the certain forces had certain reputations. And uh, it's interesting what Parky just says about the, the, they send the right people to the right place in the end. But anyway, Jaguar, they, they were based uh, just north of Norwich. Um, yeah, they so, were a very know, chilled, nice bunch of people. I don't think that would have suited I wouldn't have fitted in, would I? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, but that, I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I wanted to go Harrier. Um, I, 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 I genuinely can't remember at what point I wanted to go Harrier. But I know that Sean, flying with Sean Perrett, my primary instructor at Valley, had an awful lot to do with it as well, you know, and yeah. kind of cemented it. Yeah. You know, so I bet you probably had a Jaguar instructor somewhere along the way. And Parky, you know, you you may have had a, and and I think that's an awful lot to do with it, isn't it, Jack? With the guys in the crew room, um, yeah. You know, I know the the way the you know the helicopter guys have uh, just done an outstanding job for the last 
20 years now in Afghanistan and Iraq that an awful lot of people and it, it got a lot of publicity over the last few years that you know there's quite a lot of people join that want to go helicopters in the end isn't there which is completely different from uh, from when we started yeah well i think that the other thing is is that they look at the fast jets of today and when we were driven when we were uh, going through they were pretty steam driven okay they were they were complex in their own ways but uh, they weren't fly by wire they were just still uh, stick and rudder airplanes that we were going to uh, and now you look at f35 and typhoon and the guys think well i won't really be flying those as such it'd be more of an operation and therefore you, you know that this is their mindset I, I try and put them right god has just raised his eyes they're thinking well you know i won't be doing as much actual flying and combat and and fighting you know interesting exciting stuff that parky was talking about in the low level environment um but if i go helicopters then i will i'll still be flying most of the time actually stick and rudder flying at low level and it'll be so that has changed people's mindset to a certain extent um the youngsters now coming through there's quite a few actually that that want to go uh, helicopters although i just looked after a course definitely see that that that's that, you know and even it was just when when you were ditting on and we were talking about shawbury i suddenly remembered obviously that you boys when you went harrier you did a you know 10 hours or whatever you did at shawbury learning to hover and i i always remember thinking that must have been a hoot. What a brilliant course. Just, you know, you didn't go solo in it, but you just, you just gooned around in a helicopter for a couple of weeks. It was the best, course greatest ever. course I've ever done. It was fantastic. Yeah. We just, it, it was sadly, it was only six hours, but you didn't have to learn any checks. They were started and shut down for you. You just had to do the flying bit in the middle. And you did, um, you know, confined area, uh, hovering as well, so hovering into a you know trees on all sides and hovering down into a but small you space. You two boys must be you know I, I sort of have a secret hankering to go. I'd love to have a go. You know, on the reds, you know, we got the odd go. You know, they gave us the the controls, and you know, I, I, I was vaguely cool to you know something like the hover where you had to, and then everything seemed to be connected in a random way. But you boys, <laughs> did it? Did it not sort of? Do you not at times think, do you know what, I wouldn't mind, wouldn't mind going helicopter after that experience because it's kind of a cool thing to do. It is, it is, you know, real flying. You know, you are flying that thing to the last inch onto the ground, as you say, in some pretty tricky conditions. Yeah. And, you know, the, I, I always think, you know, when you're on flight safety courses and, you know, we get on about, oh, I've got this story or that, the helicopter boys are the best ones. They are just unbelievable the stuff they get up to. Yeah, I, 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 if I, I hadn't gone the way that I'd gone, I always maintain that what I'd love to have done was search and rescue helicopter flying. I yeah. think that must have been just fantastic. And pretty rewarding too. Yeah, yeah. I imagine. Um, and terrifying. And there's, a, there's, a good, there's a good point there, JB, about the rewarding aspects of, of knowing exactly why you're going to work on a daily basis and um, you know saving someone's life, um, You know whether you're doing it daily or... Uh, um, or otherwise, yeah, uh, you know, I can see that. But and look at your lad, Parky. You know, if he gets to uh, gets to get an Apache, that must be a yeah, a good crack. I'll be awesome, absolutely. I mean, it clearly can't wait. But the problem Dunk would have with search and rescue is after you picked the survivor off the mountain, you'd punch him in the face for getting lost. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
Parky, they jump out within five minutes of being in with Dunk. <laughs> <laughs> put me back in the seat. Put, yeah, put me in the seat. I'm going to take me chances. <laughs> in fact, don't give me the dinghy this time. I'd rather just swim. Hey, yeah, so, look, we've probably been rambling on for a bit, haven't we? Uh, yeah, an hour, and a, an hour and a quarter, boys. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, we better wrap it up. We have got one question. Well, ah. we've got a couple of questions. I know we haven't got a lot of time. Well, do you want to crack one of those or wait for next time? Maybe wait for next time. I had one more, one more question, which I think I'm going to ask. All right, we'll do, we'll do, we'll do questions next time. Yeah, I'm going to ask one further question because I think it's quite an interesting way to finish it. The Hawk Trainer. You all, you all used it, right? And you all used it when you were fa- fairly green. Uh, for yeah. Dunk and Parky. Did you have a new appreciation of it when you returned to it from 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 the Reds, and could you do much more with it than you than you originally could after you were ex, ex, experienced pilots? I mean, uh, yeah, I remember. Uh, I mean, a first trip in the Hawk, and uh, you know, I'd flown the T thirty eight, which just seemed more modern, and it had reheat, and I jumped into this quirky little. Hawk, I remember the throttle seemed to be like a scaffold pole with one button on the top and the stick was a bit weird and there was no aileron trim on the stick. So it was just, it seemed very quirky and archaic in terms of the gauges and bits of the Hawk. And, you know, I remember going to the Phantom, you know, probably nine months later and thinking, oh, there we go, thank God for that sort of thing. And then when I got the Reds, I, you know, I had sort of mixed feeling. I remember sort of every time you... The, brake in the hawk it could be quite snatchy the brakes and be a bit sort of lefty right on the runway thinking oh god the hawk and i genuinely rate the hawk as one of my favorite aircraft i've ever flown now it is just the most fantastic machine and i think it's a quantum leap over t38 in terms of how it turns and handles and and it's just it was reliable it was just a brilliant bit of machinery that you could fly at 400 not you know 450 miles an hour and it would hardly use any fuel and it, it, it was just brilliant an absolutely perfectly wonderful bit of machine to fly and and you know flying it with the reds nine of you looping and rolling together with this thing it's just great fantastic aircraft i completely i don't know if you uh, i mean it's going back to it it's and now of course there's t2 and t1 um and having then i've flown both T2 and T1, and I, I learned to fly T2 in 2016, I think it was, and so started flying on it. And then I had uh, the uh, the requirement to go and fly T1 again at Leeming on, with a hundred squadron, and um, so and we flew Hawks actually all, all over the world. So different, I think we went to so Oman had Hawks, so we went and flew Hawks with them. So different types of Hawks, um, but the T2 and the other different types just actually aren't a patch on the T1. The T1, the initial Hawk that we flew through training and that uh, we flew on the Reds, was just the sports car of all Hawks. It's lighter. It, you know, it didn't have any of the kit in it. It was very much just um, uh, hands and feet, and that was it. And uh, it was the most fantastic aeroplane. And I think to answer your question, the, the answer is yes, you could do more with it, but only because you had more hours on your belt when you went back to it you had the confidence to uh, to operate it um, a little bit further outside of the envelope that you've been operating it on 
sort of when you were going through advanced training you just had a bit more knowledge and a bit more confidence with it awesome i think that is a good place a good place to leave it then uh god, god is it are you still still on twitter mate i'm still there at god is twit um i've been a bit quiet recently but um you know should be back on there reasonably soon excellent got lego uh we've got lego parking of course i don't know if i've heard of lego parking for bloody months now and uh that's because we that's because we haven't been around for months that, yeah, is, that is true. That is true. It's almost like it's almost it's almost like you've been busy, goddess. Almost. Um, uh, and Dunk, where can we where, where where can we find you? Well, I'm at uh, it's, my Twitter is at Doug Major, um, but I don't often go on there to be honest. As well, I'm not very good at it. But uh, I guess the the thing that I do look at is at our at Pilot Episodes uh, uh, tweetathon. So I, I have a little look at the uh, at that. Twitter handle and we sort of respond through that as and when we uh, we get round to it. Superb. Well, boys, that was that was most pleasurable. Um, we'll be back, shall we say, four weeks' time. Yeah, I reckon so. Just before Christmas. Just before yeah. Christmas. We got to do one before Christmas. One yeah, before Christmas, Christmas episode. There we go. Uh, and we'll post our Christmas crackers to each other, and you know, we'll do notional Christmas bits too. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> God, we're all festive. Excellent. Ho, ho, ho. Right, well, Christmas. Here we go. Just before Christmas, then, boys. Right, well, I've uh, I've been J- JB, and from Dunk, Godders, and Parky. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.